Today is, uh, today is the last Sunday that two of our members, Josiah and Brianna Peterson, will be here with us. They're going uh, headed to school uh, for training to be overseas missionaries. Um, and so excited about that. And at the end of the service today, we're going to bring them up and we're as a church are going to uh, pray over them. So uh, we'll be doing that right after the invitation today. I was going to say tonight. I'm already looking forward to tonight, I guess. So as we begin, we're we're in the final chapter of Galatians, beginning the final chapter of Galatians this this morning. Um, if you're visiting with us, I'm glad that you're here. We're more than welcome. Uh, we uh, want to uh, uh, extend our welcome to you for sure, um, and thank you for being here. Um, we also want you to know that we go straight through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, section by section, and we're in the last chapter of Galatians. So a lot of things we're going to talk about today as we read these verses in Galatians are things that we have talked about before. And if, you're, uh, if you've been here, um, I hope you've had opportunity to be here for the previous sermons or to at least listen to them online, um, because a lot of the things that we're going to talk about in Galatians chapter 6, a lot of things Paul says and applications that he makes to us as believers as we go through chapter 6 is what he, what he has said before. It's building off of what he has said in the previous chapters. Uh, the Galatians, the reason this letter was written is because the Gentile churches in Galatia were being infiltrated by false teachers. They were being told that faith in the gospel alone, trusting in Jesus, his death, his resurrection in the lo alone, was not enough for Gentiles to be right with God, to be righteous before God. You also had to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. You had to obey the law of Moses. You had to live like the Jews have always lived. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. So if you Gentiles want to be a beneficiary of his salvation, and God's salvation, you have to follow all of these laws. And Paul has spent the whole book basically showing us that is not true. Perfect righteousness before God is found in the gospel alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by grace, through faith alone, with no work or ritual or ceremony or anything else added that we can do. And in fact, Paul said, if we try to add any amount of our own works to the gospel, thinking that somehow our works are making us more right with God or more righteous before God. Paul said that we're deceived and we're rejecting the gospel. We're rejecting the promise of God. It's by grace through faith that we're united with Christ so that his death is the payment for our sin and his righteous life is our position now before God. We are in Christ and there's no higher standing we can achieve with God that's even possible than being in Christ. In short, Paul's told us over and over again in Galatians that we're free. But Paul has also said in the last chapter, chapter 5, as we walk through that, that freedom in the gospel means that we're also no longer enslaved to our sin. We're no longer enslaved to the flesh that ruled us. In fact, in chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, Paul said this. He said, for you were called to freedom. 
He means freedom from the law that he's been talking about all this time, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but make sure you pay attention to these because we're going to be referencing them. Through love, serve one another. Don't live for your flesh. Instead, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And then after this text, Paul gave us two lists. And we've been walking through those lists for the past two weeks. One list, the works of the flesh, showing us what it looked like to live a life characterized by the flesh. And the other list, the fruit of the Spirit. As we studied those lists, we saw that the works of the flesh are all focused on self. Hatred, strife, division, factions, jealousy, sexual immorality, all characterize a life that is lived for self and for the flesh, for, for what pleases me, what I can get out of it. But the life that's characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, is focused on one another. A life serving one another in love. The only way to demonstrate love and patience and kindness and gentleness, the only way to grow in those things is to do so with one another. It's hard to be patient when you're in isolation. I guess you can be patient with your circumstances, but Paul's context here is telling the Galatians how to live with one another. So walking by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit is done in community. But chapter 5 also told us that there's still a war that's raging inside every believer. He said the flesh wars against the spirit, spirit wars against the flesh. The flesh doesn't go away quietly when we are born again. We still battle with it continually and we'll continue to battle with it until we leave this life or Jesus returns. But we are no longer enslaved to the flesh. The spirit now lives in us if, if we've been born again. And he wars against the flesh. He brings conviction of sin. He disciplines us when we try to walk in the flesh. So at the end of chapter 5, the command that Paul finally gets to and he finally gives the believer in Christ is not a new law to follow. The command he gives is not, hey guys, okay, let's do better. Come on guys, let's work harder. Let's, let's strive to be more. Let's do more. Let's Let's, let's be more. He says, if we have life in the Spirit, if you live by the Spirit, His command is just keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit is doing in you. And so as we begin chapter 6, what He's going to do, what He's going to do is going to show us a continuation of what keeping in step with the Spirit looks like. So in our reading today, I want to start in verse chapter 5, verse 25. And I want to work through to Galatians 6, 5. I think I got all my numbers right. We'll see. So he says this, these two verses we looked at last week. If we live by the spirit, if we have life by the spirit is what he means. If you're born again, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited or prideful. That's important. It's going to come up again. Provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. 
Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. God, I just pray that you would give us clarity today. God, I pray that you would, uh, that you would be clear and that you would uh, show us what this text means in our own lives. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your guidance. Thank you for your spirit who is here among us and is moving to apply this word to our hearts. Lord, we, we long to hear from you today. So God, we pray that you would speak. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we ended with 25 and 26 in chapter 5. He told us to keep in step with the Spirit, not being prideful or provoking one another. And then chapter 6 continues the thought, fleshing out what keeping in step with the Spirit looks like in the church. And the first thing he tells us to do is restore the sinning brother or sister. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Keeping in step with the Spirit means we love one another. And when a brother or sister is in sin, we come alongside them to restore them. And we do this with gentleness, which is a fruit of the Spirit. He says, if anyone is caught in a transgression, which could either mean that the transgression has been found out, they've been caught in it, or it could mean that they're ensnared by it. It probably means both, that they're ensnared by this transgression. When they're caught in sin, those who are spiritual are to restore them. Now, when he says those who are spiritual, what, we're, what we usually think when we read this passage is that those who are spiritual are the super elite, you know, the, the upper level Christians, the super good Christians, those who have all their ducks in a row, those who are more committed, more educated, more mature in Christ. But once again, we have to read this verse in the context of all the verses that have come before, especially the two that just came right before this. Paul has been talking about the Spirit in all believers through the whole book. And in 525, two verses before this one, he said, since we all have life in the Spirit, we need to keep in step with the Spirit. So one verse later, when he says, you who are spiritual, he's not talking about a higher class of Christian. He's talking about those who have God's Spirit, those who have been born again. Those who are walking in Christ's spirit, which is all of us, we're either walking by the spirit or by the law. And so it's not a higher class of Christian. It's those who are walking by the spirit, those who are keeping in step with the spirit. He says, all Christians, you, all you Galatians, you who are born again, you are to restore your fellow believer who is caught in transgression. This is a command for every single believer. Don't let the English word should there in the verse throw you. This is not a suggestion. It's a command. This is a responsibility for everyone. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And it's not loving to just ignore sin in the body. It's not loving to just ignore sin from people that you love and people that you care about, knowing that sin is destructive in all manners and in all ways. The word restore is interesting in this text because it's the same word that's used in Mark chapter 1 to describe what Peter and John were doing to their fishing nets when Jesus came upon them. They were mending them. They were repairing them. They were restoring them, if you will. But it's also used in the medical vocabulary of ancient Greece when it meant to, to set a broken bone. So it's, it's to put something in order, to put it back in order, to restore it. 
Throughout Galatians, we have seen that the churches in Galatia, they were moving toward legalism. That was the problem. That was the temptation. That was the false teaching is that you have to do things to be right with God. You have to keep these laws. You have to do these works in order to be right with God or to improve your standing before God. And so when you think that, that, that you're righteous because you're keeping laws or because you're doing good or because you're, you're, you're following your works, man, when you, when you think that way, it's easy to look down on others who are entangled in sin. It's easy to condemn them. Because the law offers no restoration. It offers no forgiveness whatsoever. The sacrificial system was done away with because it pointed toward Christ. In the law, there's no way to redeem you if you break the law. So those in Galatia, those who were following this temptation, following these false teachers, the ones that thought they were righteous by the law or more righteous by the law, they were devouring and biting each other, destroying one another when, when, the, when they broke the law. Paul says that's not how believers treat one another. That's not how we walk in the spirit. That's not what Jesus did for you. When we keep in step with the spirit and know the truth of the gospel, we love one another and we call one another back to faithfulness in Christ. We call one another to repentance. So how do we restore one that is caught in transgression? Because there's a lot of temptation that goes around with this in a lot of different directions. Paul doesn't give us really the method here in Galatians, but it's spelled out very plainly by Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. He says this, if your brother sins against you, now make sure you understand this. If you have a New American Standard Bible in front of you or a, a New International Version in front of you, the words against you are not there because in a lot of the older manuscripts, they're not there. So if your brother sins Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. He says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So restoration, make no mistake, it comes by repentance. So we're commanded to go to our sinning brother and sister, the ones that are caught in sin, to go to them privately and plead with them in gentleness, it says, with the spirit of gentleness, plead with them to repent. If they refuse, we take others with us and we plead with them again. If they refuse, we bring it before the church and the church must act to remove them from fellowship. Listen, in both the Galatians passage and in Matthew 18, the purpose of this is not punishment or judgment or outing people or, or seeking others harm. It is restoration. It is lovingly bringing the straying sheep back to the fold. It's to bring that person back to following Christ, knowing that sin in all of our lives is destructive and devastating, and it kills. It kills families. It kills lives. It destroys. So our goal is not, well, I'm just going to go tell the church, and we'll see what they say. No, the goal is I love you, and I don't want you walking down this path anymore. And throughout this whole restoration process, it, it usually takes a long time of praying and pleading and tears and all those things, but it must be done with gentleness. It must be done with love as we keep 
in step with the Spirit. This is not a license to be a sin sniffer. It's not a license to go around and make sure you're checking on everybody and being the holiness police. But also it's not loving one another to ignore and enable unrepentant sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters. We are our brother's keeper. We're commanded to seek restoration. And there are controls in the Matthew passage. So if you've got somebody who is the holiness police and they're just nitpicking over everything, that's why it says you bring somebody else with you because they'll, they'll tell you to shut up if you're wrong. So restoration can't happen without confronting the reality of sin. And this may require some firm words. But even then, it has to be done in love and with gentleness. Jesus did all things in love. He was firm and he was hard sometimes. But he was never harsh and he was never unloving. This is important, church. It's very important. Because the question is not if one day we may have to engage in this process is called church discipline. The question is not if we have to. The question is when will we have to? It's not easy. It's not fun. But we are responsible for one another. And faithfulness to God's word requires it. This is what a church keeping in step with the Holy Spirit looks like. But restoring the sinning brother or sister here in verse 1, it also comes with its own temptation for us. So Paul attaches this warning. And while this is going on, while you're seeking to restore the one you love, you better keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul's reminding us, listen, none of us, none of us are above the pull of sin. And you are not so strong that you can't give in to temptation. <clears throat> Both the sheep and the shepherds, they have to guard themselves, watch over themselves, because sin is pleasurable to our flesh and it is deceptive. Tomorrow, it very well could be you caught in a sin or caught in sin. We all sin, but caught in sin. We need to keep watch on ourselves lest we be tempted. We're tempted to fall into, into the sin of our neighbor as we come alongside them to try to restore them. But more often than not, we're tempted to be eat up with spiritual pride as we try to correct one another. Well, if you'll just be like me, <clears throat> you wouldn't have this problem. Well, we need to be praying for so-and-so. They done done it again. No, keeping in step with the Spirit means we're keeping watch over our own hearts because we know they're my brother, they're my sister in Christ, Christ saved them, they're born again, they're indwelled with the Spirit. I'm no different. I'm no different. Sin and the flesh have a pull on me just like they have on everybody else. So sin, so, so keeping in step with the Spirit means, means that we're helping one another to follow Jesus. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about just correcting one another and making sure that you're following the rules and I'm following the rules. We're talking about helping each other follow Jesus. You help me follow Jesus. I need your help. I'm not saying that as a preacher story. I really need your help. And I want to help you follow Jesus. We need each other because sin is deceptive. I may not fall into the same kind of sin that you fall into because that's not my weakness. It's not my temptation, but I've got them. I've got the temptation. I've got my own weaknesses. We all have different areas where, where Satan knows what bait to put out on the hook for us. We all need each other. 
Keeping in step with the Spirit means we're helping one another follow Jesus. I don't know if I have time for this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Just to let you know, I'm not talking about, hey, I'm, I'm going to be coming to some of y'all and we're going to talk about your sin today. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. And I'm not talking about us being the sin police on everybody else. But we all have areas. We all have blind spots. We need each other. As a pastor uh, in my early years as a pastor in Tennessee, I, uh, uh, I, I used to love, well, I still love, but I, I used to love to play these video games, you know, like the video game thing. And I had these, these, this little portable PSP video game thing. And so quick, quick story. This is just to show you that I'm right there with you. Um, I went and got this thing and it broke. I say it broke. What I mean is that I broke it. And so what I, I bought it from this other place and I broke it. And at the time, Walmart was uh, advertising, hey, just bring it back. We'll give you another one. You know what it's like? Okay. So I went and brought it back and I got another one. <clears throat> but I didn't buy it from Walmart. <clears throat> but they gave me another one. And my friend there in the church, we, we camaraderie over these video game things. And I said, look, man, I got a new one. It works now. And we were all talking. He said, where'd you get us? I got it at Walmart. He said, I thought you bought it at the other deal. I said, yeah, but they're advertising. I'm, I'm the pastor. He said, isn't that stealing? And I went, yes. <laughs> and I took it back. Just a blind spot. Just feeding my own flesh. We're all susceptible to it. All of us. All the time. We have to have one another. We have to have one another because in isolation, the flesh is strong. The second thing Paul tells us is that we are to bear one another's burdens. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Restoring the sinning brother or sister is part of what it means to bear one another's burdens. We don't just sit on the sidelines pointing out other people's sinfulness. Pointing out where you're failing. No, we come alongside them and help pull them out of the mire. Bearing one another's burdens is the reason that we must seek to restore one caught in a transgression. But bearing one another's burdens also means so much more than that. It's helping to bear all the different burdens that we experience in this life. Some people are fighting extremely difficult temptations. Some have physical ailments. Some have family crises. Some have financial burdens, emotional burdens. I mean, the list goes on and on. <clears throat> there are a host of things that are always present in this life. And I hate to break it to you, but as soon as one burden is relieved in your life, there's going to be another one coming down the pipe. <clears throat> I don't care who you are or how spiritual you are. From this pulpit right here all the way to the back door, every single born-again, Christ-loving believer still has burdens. Every single one, even the most devoted of Christians has burdens and our burdens may be different depending on what's going on in our lives, what kind of personality we have, uh, what stage of life that we're in, but we all have them. God did not intend for us to bear the burdens of this life in isolation from the body of Christ. God does not intend for us to be unconcerned about the burdens of our brothers and sisters because what unites us is so much stronger than what is different about us all. We're united in Jesus Christ. The church is a family. It's a community. It's a body. 
And this also is not a suggestion. It's a command. It's in the imperative. Bear one another's burdens. When someone is in our circle of fellowship, they have a heavy burden of heart or mind. We're commanded to come alongside them and help them bear it. Whatever that may entail. Bearing one another's burdens is not just the kind thing to do. It's what the Spirit leads us to do when we keep in step with Him. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. It's how that's played out. In fact, it's so integral. Bearing one another's burdens is so integral to the Christian life that Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is love one another as I have loved you. It's what Jesus said. I give you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. And we were just told earlier in chapter five, love fulfills the whole law. Bearing one another's burdens is what it looks like to serve one another through love. What Paul said in chapter 5, verse 13. It's what it looks like to not bite and devour and be consumed by one another, as he said in chapter 5. And why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to bear one another's burdens? And it is hard. Paul tells us. It's because we're deceived by our own pride. You see it? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ because for... If anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Paul implies that we don't or won't bear one another's burdens because we, we think too highly of ourselves. Listen, our problem is, all of our problem, my problem is, it's not a lack of self-esteem. It's not that we lack knowledge or that we lack experience in these things or all the other excuses that we make. My problem is that I think too highly of myself. I won't expend the time and energy to get involved in someone's life. It's too hard. It's too taxing emotionally. It's too big of a burden as it rolls over on me. It's too time consuming to get down in the mud with someone and help them bear this burden they're struggling under. And the deceitful pride that is displayed here, it works itself out in a lot of different ways. Sometimes what we do is we just neglect fellowshipping with anybody. And so I just don't know about anybody's burdens. Nobody knows about my burdens. If I just isolate myself, then nobody shares their burden with me. I don't see a burden on anybody's face because I'm never around anybody. We don't see anybody that has a burden because we're not investing with anyone. We're not discipling anyone. We're not being discipled by anyone. We're not fellowshipping with anyone. That's pride. And it means you're also not growing in the fruit of the Spirit because it's played out in community. You can't grow in patience or gentleness or kindness unless somebody's trying your patience. Somebody's stretching out your kindness. Patience doesn't grow in isolation. Kindness doesn't grow in isolation. Gentleness doesn't grow in isolation. Sometimes pride keeps us from telling other people that we have a burden. So it's not like if I'm fellowshipping with my life group, my Sunday school class, my, my discipling relationships with this, the group that I'm in or the, the close section of fellowship that I have, and I just refuse to tell people my burdens, it's not, their, it's not their fault. You ain't told them your burden. You didn't tell them that something was going on. That's pride that keeps us from doing that. And I didn't make this as clear as I should have in the first service, 
But you don't have to share every burden of your life with all 300 people in this room. You have a circle of, of discipling relationships. That's what it means to connect when our worship connects serve. You have a circle of discipling relationships, your Sunday school class, your life group, your, your discipling relationships, the, the men or women that you meet with weekly to talk about Christ and share your life with. Those, things, those are the people that you are to share your burden with. You don't have to, we don't have to plaster it on the screen and share it with everybody in the whole church. But you have to have believers come alongside you. You have to. We all have to. None of us, not, none of us are strong enough to battle it on our own, to bear the burden on our own. Listen, sometimes pride manifests itself when we do help bear someone's burden and we are in the mud with them and we're helping them bear that burden and we're thinking, man, I sure am doing a whole lot better than they are. Pride shows up in all kinds of ways. It shows up as resentment. <sighs> they need my help again. <sighs> I thought we done worked through this. Pride shows up in a lot of ways. The point really is that unless we're walking in the gospel, understanding that we are sinners and the only righteousness that I have, the only righteousness that you have, even as you bend down to help bear someone else's burden, the only righteousness that you have before God is by faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel of his salvation. Unless we're walking in that, understanding that, living in that truth, that all we are is in the gospel of Christ, our flesh will always default to sinful self-righteousness in one way or another. So understand how all of this works together, these first few verses. We'll get to four and five in just a second. When a believer is keeping in step with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, as he said in 25 26, the result is loving one another as the fruit of the Spirit is produced. It's not biting, devouting. It's not being conceited. It's not provoking. It's loving one another. And when we love one another, we will bear one another's burdens and if we're truly bearing one another's burdens, we won't shrink back from gently seeking to restore those who are caught in a transgression. And I hope as we've read verses 525 to 6-3, I hope you've seen this. Notice that at each point of Paul's presentation, he shows us what hinders us from keeping in step with the Spirit. It's pride. In verse 25 and 26 of chapter 5, he said, keep in step with the Spirit, not being conceited. In 6.1, he said, restore the sinning believer, but keep watch over yourself that you're not tempted. In verses 2 and 3, he said, bear one another's burden. He says, but don't deceive yourself thinking more highly than you ought. At each point, he's telling us how to keep in step with the Spirit with one another. He says, watch out for pride. Watch out for self-centeredness. Paul presents pride and, and self as the biggest hindrance to, that keeps us from walking in step with the Spirit. And so in verses 4 and 5, the last verses we'll look at today, Paul shows the believer how to fight against pride when it comes to following Christ and when it comes to loving one another. He says for us to judge, to test ourselves by God's Word alone. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, there's a lot here. Paul is commanding, basically in a nutshell, he's commanding the believers 
to compare themselves, not to compare themselves to one another, but to compare themselves and test themselves by God's word, by God's standard alone. Now, the ESV really obscures this a little bit. Uh, so I put these other two translations on the screen for you. It says in the New American Standard Bible, it says your boasting will be in regard to yourself, not in regard to your neighbor. And the New International Version says each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. So Paul is again for the fourth time in these few verses warning us of spiritual pride. This time he says, don't puff yourself up by comparing yourself with your struggling or your sinning brother and sister. When you try to restore, when you're seeking to restore the one caught in a transgression or when you're helping someone bear the burdens of this life, the tendency of our fallen flesh is to compare our life, our works, our faith, our spiritual walk to the one who's struggling. And, and to be honest, I mean, when you do that, you end up looking pretty good. Compared to that person who's mired in sin or mired in or being crushed by this burden, whatever burden they're carrying, I'm doing pretty good. God's pretty pleased with me. But the problem is God doesn't grade on a curve. He has one standard and it's given in his word. We are to test our own work by his standard, not by our neighbor, whether they're doing great or whether they're not doing so great. Here in this verse, in, in, in verse 4, in the ESV, it says, let each one test his own work. But it's not a suggestion. It's in the imperative. It's a command. New American Standard Bible actually translates it a little more accurately. It says that each must examine his own work. And the standard by which we examine, we test our own work, it's the word of God alone. Boy, it's easy to get puffed up when a brother or sister falls lower than us. Or when they're unable to bear a burden that we feel like we might be better equipped to handle. But comparing yourself to someone else is no reason to boast. And it's no reason to be discouraged if you're not measuring up to whoever you're comparing yourself to. The person is not the standard that we have to live by. God's word is the standard that we live by. Paul says, test your own work meaning by God's standard, he says, and then you will have reason to boast in yourself alone. You can't boast about your work in helping your neighbor. Oh, I'm doing such a great job helping them bearing the burden. Oh, God's so proud of me. And you can't boast in how your life looks compared to your neighbor. When, when we come alongside to help those burdened or, or sinning, the flesh seizes the opportunity to get us thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And when that happens... Even if we don't consciously believe it and would never say it, we're once again slipping into the ditch of legalism. We're saying what I am doing or what I have done makes me more right before God than this poor little wretched sinner here or this believer who is struggling under this burden here. That's legalism and it's a lie. Righteousness is either all in the gospel or it's not. You will stand before God and you will be either 100% righteous in Jesus Christ, united to him, or you will be absolutely zero righteousness in your own works. Those are your only two options when you stand before the judgment bar 
of God. We'll be growing in righteousness all through our lives. But when it comes to the judgment of God, 100% in Christ or zero. The gospel is either all or nothing. In every circumstance, in every soul, in every life. No matter what the situation is, whether we're talking about sin, whether we're talking about burdens, whether we're talking about salvation, or whether we're just talking about our walk in Christ, you cannot compare yourself to other people. We're all sinners saved by grace. When Paul says, by testing your own works, you will have reason to boast in yourself alone, I think that he's saying... Test your own life against God's standard. And if you're doing everything right according to God's standard, then you'll have reason to boast. I think he says it this way because he knows that nobody's going to be able to boast before God. And the reason I think that, I don't just assume it from this text. The reason I think that is because in this same chapter in verse 14, Paul's going to say, but far be it to me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul was doing a whole lot more than I'm doing. He was a whole lot better Christian than I am. But even Paul said, look, I'm not boasting in anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't have to boast. We don't have a reason to boast because everything that we have, everything that we have is a gift from God. Everything good that we do is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, believers will receive rewards and crowns for the good works that they accomplish in this life. But in the end, we'll cast those crowns at his feet. Because anything good we do is because we're walking by the Spirit, led by the Spirit. And any love that we show is because the fruit of the Spirit produces it in us. To God be the glory for any good that we do. And then Paul says, each will have to bear his own load. Now, doesn't that contradict verse 2? I mean, he said, bear one another's burdens. And now he's saying, oh, well, each one's going to have to bear his own load. Is Paul contradicting himself? No, he's not contradicting himself in the space of three verses. The boasting in verse 4 and the load in verse 5 are both spoken of in the future. He says, you will have reason to boast. You will have to bear your own load. Paul's talking about when we stand before God. He's saying, bear one another's burdens in this life. And don't get puffed up comparing yourselves to one another. Because when you stand before God, you'll be all on your own. You'll have to bear your own load. God won't compare you to your neighbor. He won't compare you to your friends. You won't be judged in a crowd. You won't be able to tell God, you know, I know I didn't follow perfectly and exactly, but I was way better than this guy. So surely that's got to mean something. No, you're going to bear your own load. On that day, you will bear your own load. Every bucket's going to sit on its own bottom. On that day, no one will be able to help you. No one will be able to bear your burden with you, bear that load with you. So today, in this life, we can't try to lighten our load of sin by comparing ourselves to one another. We have to cast that burden on Jesus Christ because he's the only one that can bear it. He's the only one that can stand with us at the judgment and say, I have borne their load. I have borne their burden. I have paid for their sin. Paul's point here is that one walking in the spirit will be invested in helping one another bear their burdens, struggling with sin, our brothers and sisters, and at the same time, also see ourselves rightly in the gospel, knowing that outside of Christ, none of us have reason to boast about anything. 
So let's walk through the teaching of this section. Walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, 5, 25, and 26. Keeping in step with the Spirit means we're investing ourselves and discipling one another. We're gently restoring one another as we fall into sin. We're bearing the burdens of one another as we help each other follow Christ. And we are always testing ourselves by the Word of God rather than comparing ourselves to one another. That is what a Spirit-filled church looks like. When I say, man, when I say spirit-filled church, what usually comes to our mind is, is shouting and dancing and big emotional experience. I mean, I don't dance, but I'm all for shouting, uh, you know, all that. No, it's loving one another. It's how we treat one another, how we disciple one another. The fruit of the Spirit is not focused on self. It is focused on one another. As Christ is being made manifest in our life, the fruit of the Spirit, as we saw as we looked at that list, that's who Jesus is. He's perfect in love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness. And we're being made more and more like Christ as the fruit of, fruit of the Spirit is produced in our life. So the Spirit-filled church, the Spirit-filled believer, the Spirit-led believer, the one walking, keeping in step with the Spirit, is the one who is looking more and more and more like Christ. It's loving one another, keeping in step with the Spirit as He produces the fruit in us. It's what a Spirit-filled church looks like. It's what a Spirit-filled life looks like. It's the kind of life God uses to change the world. And to glorify his name. You know why? Because that is the kind of life that more than any other shows the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel changes lives for eternity. It saves souls. It changes our hearts. And it frees us from the enslavement to the flesh of self to serve him. By serving one another. So believer, keep in step with the Spirit. He is growing patience in you, gentleness in you, kindness in you toward one another. Let's hold fast to the gospel in our own hearts. See ourselves rightly as we engage in bearing one another's burden, restoring one another when we're caught in transgression. See ourselves rightly. All our righteousness comes from Him. And ask ourselves the question, are we keeping in step with the Spirit? Are we trusting Jesus as we love one another? And today, ask yourself the question, have I met this Jesus? Have I entrusted myself to Him? If you don't know Christ, if you're just trying to live good and be moral and, you know, just live a, live a good moral life, you will still be accountable for your sin. All the good works in the world can't pay for not one sin, but Jesus paid it all. Trust in him. Give him your heart and life, and he will renew your heart, and his spirit will come to dwell in you. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for who you are. God, I pray that you would, I pray that you would um, just apply this to our life today. That you would show us as believers that we, we're responsible to one another and for one another. God, we're responsible to help one another, to love one another.
to come alongside one another. That's what making disciples looks like, discipling one another. Father, I pray that you would impress this upon our hearts and also impress upon us the reality that we cannot do this in our own strength. We are not capable. We're not strong enough. We're not devoted enough. We don't have the willpower for it. We don't have the stamina for it. We cannot do this. God, you must, you must energize us. You must empower us. You must lead us to follow after you as you accomplish these things. Help us, God, to be faithful. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would speak to their heart, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would show them that you love them, that you gave your son to die on the cross for sin, and that by trusting in that sacrifice and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all our sin can be forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, it will be cast and you will save for eternity. God, I pray that you would save souls among us today. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me, I'm going to stand right down here. I would love to pray with you if you want to come. Will you stand with me?